Welcome to Navigating the New Normal, Grant Thornton's podcast exploring trends in business and the marketplace. I'm Therese Raft and I'm joined by Tony Petito, National Head of Agribusiness, Food and Beverage at Grant Thornton and Medina Aziz, Audit Partner with a range of food and beverage clients. Today we're talking modern manufacturing and the food and beverage 10-year roadmap, an exciting opportunity to help propel Australian produce into the global marketplace. Welcome, Tony and Medina. Thanks, Therese, and hello, Medina. Thanks, Therese. Hi, Tony. So the Modern Manufacturing Initiative has been careful to select areas of opportunity that were already areas of strength for Australia. Now, we already have an amazing reputation for food, don't we? Absolutely. Look, Australia's got a, a really a, a great international reputation for, for the produce that we produce. It's, it's green and clean, and we command premium on international markets, not only internationally, but also in Australia. And we are fortunate, we are close to, uh, we have close proximity to the Asian market. We are a, very much a trusted exporter. And despite the glitches that we're experiencing in a few areas with our exports into China, it also gives the Australian producers, I think, an opportunity to diversify into new international markets. And, you know, Australian manufacturers have really shown during COVID that they can be agile producers and they've demonstrated a significant, you know, resilience during this period and have been able to, I guess, pivot into other different areas to keep the Australian economy, you know, really growing. I think, yeah, agree. We definitely have a competitive advantage in food exports. We have ideal climate and soil to produce a wide variety of quality fresh food pretty much all year round. But there's also a significant amount of processed and value-added food that we're famous for, things like cereal, muesli, oats, nuts, organic food and other health foods. I think we, we typically associate our famous food with the beef, our wines and so forth. So there's a lot of other areas that we are also quite well known for in in the world. Um, But there's still so much opportunity can be leveraged off the good reputation that we have. So not only in value adding to the basic commodity foods we supply the world, but also tapping into new markets, as Tony mentioned. That's a really good segue because what I find really interesting about the roadmap is they're consistently talking about innovation, automation, digitization, data analytics, very much associated with the processed foods. But that all very much sounds like, um, I guess, sugary foods, processed foods, fast foods. I think you're right, Therese. I think when we instantly think those terms, we think about, you know, manufactured foods and, and associated with that is capital expenditure. But it's a lot broader than that. It's about producing better quality product, establishing quicker delivery times, reducing waste, but it could even be bringing products, processes and design to new and existing markets or value chains and customers. I mean, I recently had a client who manufactures a perishable product, roughly has a three-day shelf life. And when we were discussing the initiative, they thought they had missed the boat because they'd already spent quite a bit of money on a new state-of-the-art automated plant facility, plant line. But when we discussed what they were doing over the next six to nine months, we uncovered that they were redesigning their product to extend its shelf life and considering frozen options, as well as redesigning their packaging or individual packaging. And this was specifically undertaken to supply to a very large Australian customer. And that's a perfect example of innovation. 
Yeah, that's a really good point, Medina. And I think, you know, another example of innovation could be, you know, looking at provenance in terms of where the food comes from. And, you know, one particular area where this is important, for instance, is in wine. And, you know, we frequently have the situation where Australian, you know, overseas where wine is deemed to be Australian, but it's, in fact, it has been counterfeited and it's not Australian wine. And so the new technology, new innovation can help producers underpin the provenance of Australian wine because it's got a fantastic reputation overseas and we want to be able to protect that. That's fascinating. I think many of us wouldn't assume that there'd be counterfeit wine floating around. Now, the vision is to double the value of Australia's food and beverage manufacturing by 2030. Is that doable? And is it doable because we have a low base to build from? Well, it is absolutely doable. And there are a number of ingredients that help underpin this. And Australia's exports have already been growing and manufacturing has already been growing. So it's not as if it it hasn't been growing recently. But, you know, we have the necessary ingredients, as I mentioned. You know, the world's population is expected to grow to 9.8 billion by 2050. So the demand is there. The food manufacturing sector is also closely aligned with the agricultural industry, which is aiming to increase its farm output to $100 billion by 2030. So that's, you know, a five to six percent compound growth rate. Also, you know, food and beverage manufacturing in Australia is the is the single largest manufacturing sector, which accounts for about 28 percent of all manufacturing turnover in Australia. So absolutely doable. We have the ingredients and you know, very much so um, an achievable target. I agree with Tony here. It's definitely doable and there's plenty of opportunity. And as we mentioned, particularly in the value add sectors, we have access to the raw materials. We have access to really great manufacturing capability across the country. So we've got some really good assets in Australia that we haven't fully tapped into. And on top of that, almost all the players are SMEs. So it's quite fragmented at the moment and operates in silos with a lot of duplication. And the sector can really excel here because value adding in Australia will actually generate a higher return and create more jobs. Now, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this, so perhaps you can help me a little bit. When the government talks about incubation hubs and access to large-scale end-to-end production facilities, does the sector, which as you say, many SMEs, very fragmented, do they really want to collaborate when they are so different and there are perhaps competitive advantages in going alone? Well, look, integration and collaboration certainly has been difficult for the sector, given that, you know, you have many diverse business types, as you've spoken about, and many SMEs that make up the sector. So there are certainly definitely competitive advantages by going alone, but there are also benefits of scale, you know, that comes from collaboration, which would certainly lower production costs and improve efficiency. But it's important to understand that collaboration really can happen on a number of fronts within the sector. You know, collaboration could entail having access to pilot plants to test new products and the -the state-of-the-art equipment before undertaking significant investment that's required at an SME level. Collaboration could also be at the tertiary sector where education skills, you know, required for um, for, for the food and beverage sector are being met. It could come from government so that policy and regulatory settings for agriculture and food and beverage are aligned and centred within one department. 
And it could also, collaboration could also be at Australia's regional levels by building a region's capability, its capacity and, and business confidence to invest, innovate and scale up. So there are a number of different ways collaboration can help in the sector. I think, Tony, a good example of that is the CSIRO who've been doing uh, this sort of work as assisting with food innovation for SMEs uh, for a number of years. And some of their success stories has been around food production using significantly less amount of energy than normally required, developing alternate cooking techniques as opposed to heat that extends shelf life, kills bacteria, moulds and yeast and so forth in fresh fruit and veggies, or even developing alternate chilling and uh, methods or freezing methods using spray chilling, for example, which, which doesn't compromise life, shelf life. So it's definitely been happening. And I think the key is encouraging more of that innovation and collaboration. Wow, that's a lot of work that's going into our food. Now, as a sector, it really is all about the trends in the marketplace and being able to, or being agile to respond to these trends. Uh, is a smart food and beverage sector really going to be more able to respond more swiftly to those trends? Absolutely. The more data and real-time insight you have, the faster you can respond. And this is particularly true when you're tapping into international markets, when you're much further away from your product and even your customers. So businesses understanding what is selling, what isn't selling, where it's selling, it really tells you something about where to refocus or focus your product development. And to do that, you actually need to have smart manufacturing as well, automation to reduce errors, enhancing product shelf life, support changes to packaging and reducing food waste. Thanks, Medina. Look, and I think the other benefit of being able to respond more quickly, and you've touched upon this, is, is reducing food waste, which is a significant problem, not only in Australia, but, but globally. You know, Australians waste about $20 billion per annum in food waste, or about 7.3 million tonnes per annum. So that's about 300 kilos per person that we waste, which is about one in five bags of shopping, I guess. So, you know, by by being able to respond more quickly and being able to produce the right food where consumers want that and when they want that, then this is a, a great opportunity to be able to reduce, you know, the waste. And, and it's not only food, you know, packaging as well. You know, Australians throw away 1.9 million tonnes of packaging per annum. Now, most of that would be in, in the food production area. Really, the numbers speak for themselves. Those are really staggering numbers, Tony. Uh, and, and it's a really nice kind of segue into the next question I have, which is around supply chain, because I suppose in, in the wake of COVID, I think we can all very much agree that supply chain resilience is a very welcome addition to the food and beverage roadmap. Yeah, well, certainly COVID, what it did show is that it did have a significant impact and really did disrupt not only the local supply chain, but also global supply chains and, and movements within Australia. And so we all saw that when um, the borders were shut. So I think I think this is an area that does require some assistance from the government and the government has already commenced that by, uh, I guess, through its um, the government supply chain resilience initiative. So this is a really a step in the right direction, which, um, you know, this process looks to map and analyse, you know, where are the vulnerabilities, where are the opportunities in Australia's food and beverage factory supply chain, 
and how do we address those you know those opportunities or those weak spots within the um, within the supply chain I think I agree with Tony as well. When you have a combination of labour restrictions, raw material or import sourcing constraints, plant and border closures, coupled with panic buying, for example, this put enormous pressure in the industry. And I mean, I certainly remember when canned vegetables and minced meat were out of stock for weeks during the peak of the pandemic. Um, so what we did learn was there were a lot of gaps in the supply chain and particularly these were around, you know, transportation, logistics, procurement and, and monitoring technologies. But I think it's important to highlight as part of the initiative, it's not only about building Australia's resilience and our agility, but it's also about domestic manufacturers playing an important role in global supply chains as well and helping other countries meet their needs. So positioning us in Australia as a reliable supplier of quality products Australia can take a real important role in helping solve global supply chain issues, which naturally will flow onto our economy. That's a really good point for us all to remember. It's not just about the domestic supply chain. Now, there's something that hasn't been touched on in the roadmap, but I'm sure anyone who buys groceries will be thinking about this. With an investment of the scale, even with government support, this will surely have a flow on to the consumer's hip pocket. Not necessarily, Therese. I mean, there's a number of things that influence the cost of food, um, cost of labour, seasonality, weather events. I mean, investments should improve manufacturing efficiencies and costs in the long term, which help the stability and would ultimately allow food and beverage manufacturers to focus more on their customers, what they want, how they want it, better quality, fresher and faster. And of course, we've talked a lot about reducing waste as well. And these large scale investments are usually viewed over the long term and not your typical two to three payback periods. So the, the flow on effect is not necessarily exponential to the customer's pocket. Well, thanks, Medina. Look, um, there's some really good points there. I think also, you know, the government's incentives to try and create food hubs, well, that's that's a way that you can reduce costs and share those costs across, you know, a number of manufacturers. And also we need to remember that, you know, Australian, Australian produce and products do command a premium. We're not the cheapest products, but we are the highest quality and consumers are willing to spend a little bit more for excellent quality food. Now, there's a lot of stuff happening and this is all very much influenced by policy. And policy changes have in fact been put on the agenda as an item to address in the next two years under this roadmap. What policies spring to mind that need to change to help support the vision for a thriving food and beverage manufacturing sector? Yeah, look, I think the greatest um or the, the most urgent issue that needs to be tackled is labour availability and flexibility. With the international borders being so being closed, this is going to require some rethinking in terms of ensuring that labour is is available. Not only in the regional areas, we've all heard about you know the lack of available labour in regional areas to pick our fruit, our vegetables, but it's also within manufacturing. A number of manufacturing clients including some of my clients are experiencing real problems in being able to source labour. So I think that really does need to be tackled as a matter of urgency. 
I think the other area that does need focus on is, you know, we've spoken about smart manufacturing and new technology, you know, manufacturing hubs. Well, that's going to require labour to be trained in, into these new manufacturing technologies and uh, methods. And so the training for our manufacturing sector really does need to be addressed so that it is state-of-the-art and is available for the um, for the sector. I think the other area that the government can can assist is perhaps you know providing more support to our manufacturers to understand the non-traditional export markets. I mean we've all read about the recent China trade issues what it does show is that we do need to diversify and so the government's assistance here is is really needed to help um, our SMEs take advantage of you know non-traditional export markets and and look you know I think the government's done an excellent job over the last few years in terms of promoting the free trade agreements and um, I think you know that aspect really shows that it can have a positive impact on the sector. I think, Tony, a good example of non-traditional export markets is the current UK free trade agreement, which is expected to be finalised in the next few months, which is definitely a step in the right direction by the government and would be very beneficial uh, to the food and beverage sector. Um, At the moment, our largest exports into the UK have been beef and wine, but it will open up a lot more for F&B broadly for food and beverage broadly, particularly in other agricultural sectors, fruit and vegetables, dairy, cereal and grains, which we've already famous for. It will also be interesting to see how Australia and India agreements, which are set to recommence, uh, when negotiations were suspended back in 2015, a huge sticking point was around agriculture because half of India's employment is linked to that sector and it's our biggest export. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. It's really interesting that you're talking about the UK because I think a lot of people would have thought, wow, trying to get fresh produce to literally the other side of the world would have been quite quite a mean feat. So it'll certainly be interesting to see how that all pans out. Well, Tony and Medina, thank you so much for your time. If I can put you both on the spot, are you both contactable on LinkedIn, email, phone, if anyone would like to get in touch to talk more about the MMI and or the food and beverage sector? Absolutely, Therese. You know, I'm uh, on LinkedIn and, yeah, I'm really passionate about the sector, so I'm looking forward to having a chat to those that are interested Agree with Tony there. Thanks, Therese. And definitely contactable on LinkedIn, email or phone. So if you want to have a deeper conversation around the MMI or food or beverage um, sector, please feel free to reach out. Wonderful. Thank you so much, both. Thanks, Therese. Thanks, Therese. Thanks, Medina. Thanks, Tony. If you liked this podcast and would like to hear more, You can find and subscribe to Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.